This reminds me back uh, before, I mean, during our shutdown when the pandemic first began and I was doing this by myself remotely, I would do the scripture reading before I started preaching. Um, I'm not saying I miss those days, but it's kind of nice to be able to do that today. Our scripture reading is from Romans chapter seven. And we begin in verse 22. Paul tells us today, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. And in the midst of that daily struggle that you and I have every day, we are met with a therefore. Maybe the most beautiful therefore in all scripture. Therefore, in the midst of that struggle between our mind and our flesh, in the midst of that struggle of who will reign supreme each day, always remember, the struggle does not condemn you because therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. By Jesus' day, the kings of Israel were enforcing Roman rule on a local level. We know of Herod the Great mainly because of one event, that he ordered the massacre of every baby boy two years and younger in Bethlehem, all because three sages from the east had a rumor that a new king had been born. Although secular history does not refer to the atrocity, no one acquainted with the life of Herod doubts him capable of doing so. He killed two brothers-in-law, his own wife, Mary Amne, two of his own sons. Five days before his death, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed that they be executed on the day of his death in order to guarantee a proper atmosphere of mourning in the country. Scarcely a day passed, in fact, without an execution under Herod's regime. What is said in the annals of the Roman Senate about Herod, a general giving the Senate a report said, you don't turn your back on this one. And it was warned about 800 years before when Israel demanded a king and the last judge, the prophet Samuel, told them in 1 Samuel 8, 11, he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Just what we read with Herod 800 years later. These will be the ways of the kings. When I came back uh, from camp meeting, I was faced with just a little bit of a dilemma. I want to talk about what everyone was asking about and talking about at camp meeting. Besides the fact that we spent at least two of the sessions having Jesus revealed to us, we then uh, were also greeted with having the counterfeit Jesus revealed to us in the afternoon. And I've asked some people that they say that we would like to talk about this. We'd like to get into Revelation just a little bit. It's been a while since we've been in a prophetic book. And I'm happy to go to Revelation 12, 13, and finally 14. But 
we knew that I knew that communion was next week, so if I started today, we'd have communion and I'd have to start again. And then following that, I'm gonna be gone for two weeks if you don't mind that I take a vacation, if you don't mind. I really shouldn't ask that today, but. Uh, and so I thought that starting the series and then having to get back to it three weeks later. So what I wanted to do is, before I came here, just before we came here seven years ago, by the way, uh, July 1, seven years. You know, happy anniversary to us. Maybe so, not so happy to you, I don't know. But here we are, seven years ago. When I first came, uh, Pastor Walt, uh, and, and I, back, back at Grace Point, we had done a series on Ecclesiastes, and I have to tell you, it was, it was one of the most introspective, fantastic series for us, for, for him and me. Uh, we got more complaints about it, because nobody likes to hear from the book of Ecclesiastes. You know why? It's, it's a downer of a book, it really is, okay? It really is, and by the way, it's supposed to be. But there's something about the introspection of Ecclesiastes. See, because every time, every year that I go through the Bible and I come to 1 Kings and 2 Kings and we get to the reign of Solomon, commentators, Christian commentators, Jewish commentators, everyone alike talks about Solomon's reign as being the peak of all Israel. Because they, they, they were making more money, there were more people that, that were uh, uh, not poor, if, if you will, and, and there's this legend around Solomon's reign that this was Israel at their best. I use a, uh, an audio Bible program that I start with in my devotion going through in a year, and, and he has some great commentary, but whenever he talks about Solomon's reign, that's how he refers to it, that it was Israel's peak. Ecclesiastes is Solomon himself writing his opinion of his reign, and it's two completely different opinions. If you want to know an opinion, a, a heavenly opinion, as to how God looks upon kingdoms, all you have to do is read Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon's reign probably was about as good as an earthly kingdom can get. But when you read what Solomon has to say about it and what it did to him, you get a completely different opinion. So when you, when you wanna talk about uh, end times and you wanna talk about prophecy, um, and, and I know that, that we have talked about this before and brought this up, it's the end time is the final battle between two kingdoms, right? Kingdom here and a kingdom where? Kingdom on earth and a kingdom in heaven. And, and the one on earth is a false kingdom. It's, it's supposed to be a believer's kingdom. It's, it's set up or it's, it's purported to be. And we've been through the seven churches. We've been through the seven seals. And, and, and always, what was, what was the church's final deterioration? If, if we begin in the seven churches, give me just a, just a second. Like I said, this is an introduction that we won't need in three weeks. But, and you won't remember it anyway. So, so anyway. Um, the seven churches, as soon as the church begins, Jesus looks at Ephesus and says, I, I really dig what you're all doing. There's one thing I have in, uh, that I have against you, and what is it? You've lost your first love. 
the love of Christ, the love that he's given uh, his children to be able to spread the gospel with, some would say it is the gospel. They've already forgotten it. They've already left it behind. And they begin, the church for the next 2,000 years begins to substitute duty with love. Because otherwise, Ephesus was, they were seeking out heresies. They were keeping the church's, the church's doctrine pure. They were keeping the church's roles pure. But Jesus said, you were doing it without what? You're doing it without love. He said, and I got a problem with that. Because here's what's gonna happen. If you're gonna continue to substitute it, pretty soon, there'll be some powers that be that that unlove will wanna grab onto. And always remember, the final substitute of the kingdom of the earth, trying to, trying to act like or imitate the kingdom of heaven, the final one is an empire. The Roman Empire eventually reaches out and grabs hold of the Christian church, and it becomes an even mightier empire, amen? And then we're told a little later there's going to be another empire that is gonna build an homage to that first one. And that's what we were talking about at camp meeting. So I wanted to talk about kingdoms. I wanted to take this, this king's gentle, angry, very introspective look at his own reign, a universally loved reign, a reign that most people on the planet look at and say, this was Israel at her what? At her finest, at her best. So I think the best way to be able to introduce this, this, this entire thing about kingdoms and the substitutes that kingdoms and, and uh, empires can be for the love of Christ, I think that I'd like to start here. Get a little idea of how Solomon felt about maybe the greatest kingdom ever seen on earth. I was, if you read in 1 Kings 11, one of the first things that Solomon did was that he appointed 12 governors in all Israel. Kind of makes sense, right? 12 tribes, 12 governors. Uh, the land is divided it up into pretty much 12 portions still by the time he takes control. 12 governors, you think, wow, that's great. A king that, that is willing to surrender power and to delegate to governors, to be engaged, you know, to be able to carry out local government, that's great. Uh, do you know what they were? you know what they were uh, uh, empowered to do? The reason they were appointed? It was to procure all of the palace's food. Primary focus of any of these kings from Saul all the way down to, who do we get to? Uh, Ahaz and, and, and all of them. Primary focus for any king at the time was to stay on the throne. The threat of being overthrown was constant. The day that Saul took the throne, he had enemies who didn't believe he belonged on it because there were people who didn't universally agree with that. David, same. In fact, now David begins to fight the house of Saul for his, for his reign. It's a threat for all of history's kings. Some handle it better, better than others, but all have been driven by it to an extent. So today we meet the king who calls himself the Kohelet, the Kohelet, okay? Ecclesiastes begins like this, the words of the Koheleth, son of David, king, where? In Jerusalem. 
Probably the word Kohelet means assembler, but we have seen it, the teacher, the preacher. I like preacher and teacher. So thus says the words of the teacher. Even our Kohelet, even he, king in Jerusalem, he had a problem with staying on the throne. He needed to stay on the throne. Our teacher calls us together to assemble to talk about that to talk about what it takes, to talk about what happens when selfish human power all of a sudden becomes mighty. When you're given the responsibility and you're given the power and the wealth and the riches to carry out your own will. He saw his own brother as a threat. The very first threat he eliminated to his throne was his own brother Adonijah. Adonijah was almost placed on the throne by a military coup. That that was a red flag immediately. Immediately. And it says in 1 Kings 2.24, Therefore the Lord lives, who's established me, placed me on the throne of my father David, who's made me a, a house as he promised. Today Adonijah shall be put to death. It was the first thing he did, was kill his own brother. Why? For the good of the throne. It's all now done for the good of the throne, for the good of the country. Remember Caiaphas said it best. It's better that one man die than what? Than the entire nation. So now a king can justify just about anything as long as he can prove that it's for the good of the nation. Even brotherly love or hate. I'd expect this from Saul or any number of the kings that follow Solomon. You'd hope that Solomon would somehow be different because Solomon was given something and he received it only because only he asked for it. We all know what that was, right? When he began to look at the scope and the responsibility, he got a little frightened and he, he said, I need God, I need you to give me something. What was it he gave Solomon that he didn't claim to give any other king? Wisdom, that's right. I now do according to your word, God speaking to Solomon. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you. No one like you shall arise after you. No one like him before or after. You're talking about the wisest man to ever live, at least for another 800 years. Amen? And our problem is this. Without thinking about it, just reading through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, right? With just reading through them, we look at the wealth and the might of Solomon's kingdom and we equate it to what? We equate it to his wisdom. This is what wisdom can do. Wisdom. He can be different. Solomon can do what no other king can do. So then if you just take that in mind, if you just say, well, that's my premise, that's, that's how it's going, going to work, then we could come to the conclusion that all of the wealth and the might and everything is due to God-given wisdom to Solomon by God himself. And so then we even get on board, don't we? Okay, well then maybe a rich and mighty kingdom is not such a bad thing after all. Not such a bad thing after all. And I guess I, I need to say this because I probably will a, a thousand times as, as we talk about these kingdoms. There's nothing wrong with kingdoms. 
absolutely nothing wrong with them. This is, our, this is our world, I understand. We have to live in one of them, don't we? We have to live in one of them. We can't, be all, we can't all be hermits. We can't all get, you know, go and live off the grid. By the way, if, if we do, then who are we evangelizing? So it's awfully difficult for a Christian to be off the grid, amen? We gotta live in one of these kingdoms. And by the way, that's what we're called to do to make a difference in one of these kingdoms, to make a heavenly kingdom difference in no matter how horrible the earthly kingdom is. You with me? We have to live in one of these kingdoms, so there is nothing wrong with these kingdoms. The problem is, the problem is, is that we begin to conflate our worship with the kingdom, which by the way, Israel had no choice but to do. This was their decision. You make us a nation as mighty as Egypt. They looked at Egypt and they said the reason that Egypt is mighty is because all of Egypt worships these mighty gods. And as you read about the history of Israel all through the Old Testament, do you come to the same conclusion? That just because a nation claims to worship the God of heaven, that they will always be the nation that they should be? What's the history of Israel and Judah like? First of all, after this king, they won't even be united anymore. In fact, they will war with each other, both believers in the everlasting God. It's nothing but this, isn't it? And a whole lot more of this than this, right? There's the problem. Nothing wrong with a kingdom, nothing wrong with being loyal to a kingdom. Nothing long, wrong with being loyal to a country. It's when you begin to worship that country. It's when you begin to worship the values of the kingdom and it begins to infiltrate the theology of our, our worship of God. Now we've got a problem. So listen to the king as he talks about his kingdom. As he looks back on this, on this might, this huge might, this unparalleled prosperity. He didn't have just innovative ideas. He was able to move an entire mountain. He filled in the Milo. He, he built the temple. He built the palaces. He, he, he built all of these things. His engineering is beyond what we can even imagine. Today, even today, they look at some of the original stones that are still in the Western Wall. They cannot figure out how they got them from the quarries all the way down to there and then fitted it together without <laughs> chiseling it at all. Once it was on site, it's incredible. He filled in a valley and made another Mount Moriah in order to be able to, to support the temple. He did all this, his mind, his wisdom. Solomon's wealth and wisdom through, throughout uh, history is Israel's finest hour, they say. Some would even say that the people begin to live vicariously through the king's success. And that's one of the problems of having kings in the first place. Remember, our problem started when we started to distance ourselves from God at Mount Sinai. You go talk to him, Moses. So, so the prophets become uh, a, an intermediary between the worshiper and God. The patriarchs come along and do the same thing. Finally, kings, and, and, and the separation gets even more and more. 
to the point to where you don't only rely on your king to be able to deliver your safety within the kingdom, you're also relying on the king as far as your status with God. Is that something God ever wanted? God wants to walk and talk with you. Bunch of modern commentaries see Solomon's reign this way. And when I mentioned it, we all nodded our head, didn't we? <laughs> Israel at its finest. It's hard to argue with, right? King sees it differently, though. Ecclesiastes is his reflection on this. With all the wisdom being the wisest of all kings, you'd hope that this one would be different, that this king would be different that this one would be the one who defies Samuel's reasoning of why Israel should not want a king. He starts out as one who felt that at least wisdom had a shot at making Israel all she could be. He says, I applied my mind. I applied my mind to, to the wisdom. I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. That sounds like a king who wants to make a difference, isn't it? I want to figure out why being in this kingdom, living on this planet, is such an unhappy business. Maybe I can do something about it. That's what I hear here. Maybe he would be different. I applied my mind. But then quickly, he certainly finds that there are things that not even wisdom can touch or ever change. Because he goes on to say, I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun. And see, all is what? All is vanity. All is vanity. How much is not vanity? Nothing. Nothing in this world, he says. All is vanity and a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's a void in this world, he says. There's something missing that I thought I could fix, but I cannot fix. Even with all the wisdom and all the riches in the world, there was nothing I could do about it. It applies to all the deeds that are done under the sun. All the deeds that are done under the sun. Before the sun goes out, every deed will be mounted and weighed up and Solomon will say, it was nothing. Especially when we try to offer it to God in comparison of the two kingdoms. <laughs> what is everything good under the sun heaped up in this kingdom compared to just one act of the kingdom of God? It can't be fixed by wisdom, Solomon concluded, no matter how it's applied. I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a chasing after what? A chasing after the wind. If the wind blew and you wanted to know what it was and you tried to run after it, anybody ever ran after the wind when they were a kid? I tried to because the wind kept blowing away my stuff. I thought if I, could, if I could catch it, maybe I could keep my stuff in the yard. But he said, all my wisdom applied was like what? Chasing after the wind. 
There's something crazy. There's a madness that makes even having to try to apply wisdom a chasing after the wind. Wisdom might be the greatest tool in the human arsenal. In this world, Solomon says, it's a curse. It's absolutely a curse. For in much wisdom is much what? Wow. I thought this was, <laughs> I thought this was it. This was the absolute weapon. A king with all God's might and power and given all God's wisdom, wanting to make a difference, wanting to make a chance, and he said, even though wisdom is a vexation. For those who increase knowledge, increase what? He said, the more I knew, the more I got to know, the more sorrow I uncovered. What an unhappy business this kingdom is. What an unhappy business this world is is. Wow. The more you know, the more you're vexed. The more vexed you are, the more angry you get. The more frustrating it is. The more you know, the more it hurts. See, I don't think Solomon is referring to the everyday increasing in knowledge and education. Knowing more than what we knew yesterday is what we're supposed to do. Well, actually, knowing more today uh, than we did yesterday about Jesus, that that is the blessing. That is the blessing. But Paul, but, but Solomon is saying, on this planet, even that is a vexation. You got to remember what his original intent was. He's a teacher. He's a preacher. He's not talking about education. He's not talking about getting to know more. You have to be careful with this, especially when, when you're preaching to high school students who say, oh, so the more we know, the worse it is. Ah, forget school then. Right? But what he wanted to accomplish was supposed to be his wisdom applied to be able to teach and to preach. Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. You've kept him from this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. So now, O Lord, my God, you've made me your servant and king, of place, uh, and king in place of my father David. Although I'm only a little child, I don't know how to go out or to come in. Your servant's in the midst of the people whom you've chosen, a great people so numerous they can't be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil who can govern these great people." He wants to make a difference. He really believes he can. He wants to serve as he governs. His wisdom, he believes, can transcend what Samuel said a king would demand of Israel. Wisdom could transcend that curse that Samuel said a king would be. A king could be more than someone who just lived out his own selfishness on the backs of the people that he rules. Did it work? No. In fact, it vexed him. It caused him heartache and pain. Because the letter says so. I said to myself, come now. I'll make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was what? You'd think the richest man on earth, the wisest man on earth, the one who could get it done. And by the way, he did indulge that, did he not? He certainly did. 
But what he says is, let's just test it. Let's see if, if this could even bring pleasure. I gave it a shot. And he did, didn't he? And what did he come away with it saying? Nope. This also was vanity. It vexed him. He said of laughter, it is mad. Of pleasure, what use is it? He got pleasure, but then he had to wake up the next day. And when he woke up the next day, what did he find sitting in front of him? That his wisdom uh, made him learn, that his wisdom made him grow, that his wisdom allowed him then to be able to fix some problem in the kingdom, draw them closer to heaven. What did he find every day? Nothing. Not even laughter. That really stinks, doesn't it? I love to laugh, don't you? I probably love to laugh more than any 10, 20 people in here. But he says even that. I searched with my mind on how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the days of their life. Wine to cheer his body. Note, by the way, he's still guided by what? He's still guided by wisdom that God gave him and now he's thinking he can escape the vexation with wine. And also notice that he is doing it, he claims, as an experiment. Because if it works, then he can do it for the people that maybe his kingdom is leaving behind. Because there is a proverb where he says, let the poor do what? Let the poor have their wine for they may forget their place in this world. Didn't work. Wine to cheer his body, still guided by wisdom. If his wisdom is vexing him, angering him, frustrating him, then he might as well escape, lay hold of folly. There is a human logic to this. There is a human wisdom to this. He had access to, but, but I wonder about today. He's living uh, you know, nearly 1,000 years B.C. You gotta wonder about today. Of all the modern ways to be able to escape what's vexing us, how would he have done today? <laughs> Wine didn't work. What else could he use? I'm a baby boomer. We found out we could be addicted to anything and everything. Habits, hang-ups, addictions that we've all come to rely on. In a way, we've taken Solomon's what? We've taken Solomon's wisdom. We've taken his cue. I'll stick with this one just for a little bit because for anybody who's battled an addiction, they will tell you that wisdom or lack of it plays absolutely no role in the entanglement. Do you know how many alcoholics are in Mensa? Do you know how many alcoholics have IQs that go through the roof? This has nothing to do with smart and dumb. Wisdom, in fact, may work against you because it's the wise people who think they still got a better way. It's the wise people that, that, that their wisdom tells them, you can lock this, you got it. 
Okay, you're stronger than this, you can do it. And actually putting off the very first step that says I need to take that my addiction has become unmanageable. Wise people don't think anything is beyond their management. Wisdom may teach us that there's still a way out of this, that we can overcome this. And any addict can tell you, if I still have my hands on the wheel, it's gonna end up in the ditch. Solomon said he was still guided by his wisdom, yet he fell into this horrible trap that alcohol or any other addiction can hold. His wisdom was of no use discerning this evil from this good. You with me? But even this, he said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. Wisdom could not keep him from living every selfish lifestyle, bit of his lifestyle out, uh, using every bit of his kingly power for himself. Made Made myself, made myself, made for myself. Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, orchards, pools. He acknowledges the real sin is his selfishness and his wisdom can do nothing about it. His wisdom did nothing about it. And he also is realizing that, hey, the real evil in all of this was that I really didn't do it myself. You know who did? I bought male and female slaves. Had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasury of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, delights of the flesh, many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. See, again, when we read the history, we read through First and Second Kings, and we think, wow, look what all he accomplished. But listen to him. I hear a broken old man. Filled with what? Filled with sorrow and regret of all that he's seen, of all that he's caused. Listen to what the king says about the greatest kingdom ever. And he's getting around to the point, probably, probably, when he tries to go to sleep at night, he sees faces and he hears cries of labor, forced labor, There's a real human cost to an indulgence for a king. And this is what Samuel said the real problem with having a king was. Someone has to pay for the king's indulgence. Samuel said, he'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters. Your sons he'll allow to be sacrificed on the field of battle. Your daughters, he just said, he had many what? Concubines. 
And by the way, it's all needed for a king to stay on his throne, for a king to rule. It's very political. If any of the enemies around Israel looked and saw Solomon as weak or poor in, in any particular way, they would attack Israel immediately. Politically, a king had to show his enemies that he had something, that he had something. You cross those borders, I got something for you. He has to. And all this was sanctioned by what? By his wisdom. And what did his wisdom tell him in the end? That this was a reward for his toil? He deserved this because he had the responsibility of being king. I'm carrying forward David's promise to all his people. The selfishness, the greed, the lust, it'll be justified by the heavy burden of ruling a kingdom like this. A burden God told them 800 years ago he had in mind for no man. It's the problem of a human king. And Solomon realizes it as he looks back. I considered all that my hands had done, the toil it spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and chasing after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. How much? Nothing. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the one who do uh, the the one do who comes after the king only what has already been done he's talking about his situation for the throne i've got to keep this up this is my father's throne i've got to keep it up he brought peace because of this might i've got to keep that up in order to protect the people but he's also talking about his own selfishness isn't he and his wisdom has been able to cure that how much None. Only what has already been done. It's all vanity and chasing after the wind because it can't be stopped. It can't be combated. Not with wisdom, not with willpower, not with all human greatness and strength, not by might. So the first thing that we note about the great kingdoms on this planet is that nature trumps wisdom every day. Wisdom can do how much for our selfish natures? None. And by the way, all empire does is feed that selfishness and justify it after it's been fed. And I think that's the message that the Koheleth would like to teach us. Sinful nature can't be overcome by wisdom or willpower or wisdom that says willpower can do it. Our selfish nature can't be overcome, which is why we needed salvation. We need to be saved by the one son of David who will always sit on this very throne. What can be done? 
only what is done before. This is why there is nothing new or nothing ever will be new under the sun. From Adam to us, our sinful nature is the problem. There's nothing we can do about it. The next 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to explore every theme, the usefulness of wisdom or all human means to address this unhappy business we are given to deal with, all this under the sun, and he's going to conclude this way. When he gets all the way to the end, he says, the end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God keep his commandments for that is the whole duty of everyone for God will bring every deed into judgment including every secret thing whether good or evil the first thing he concludes to the people is quit relying on me or any other king you can go to God I'm the wisest man who ever lived and I couldn't cut it don't rely on me. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's nothing I can do about it. Think about Solomon himself. Not by wisdom, nor willpower, nor might. All we can do is go to who? All we do is go to God. Place ourselves, our deeds, and all that we do under the sun. Our wisdom, our madness, our folly, and have him do what he will do. He will judge. Now, I don't know what this exactly meant to Solomon, but I do know who his father was writing about when he wrote this down, and I don't know if he knew, if he knew that who his dad was writing about. But Psalm 132, 11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my decrees that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. Forevermore, there's only one one of David's sons that will sit on that throne forevermore. Son of David, the son of man, the son of God. That's a different light than to say let God judge. Let God rule. Let God be king. Let him put his own son whose human body will be one of David's sons. And in the matter that all will be concluded, all will be concluded. See, there was another very wise Israeli teacher who's gonna come along about 800 years later or so. He was a preacher himself. He was a Kohelet himself. Concluded the same thing as Solomon nearly 900 years later. He said this, he said, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want is no longer that which I do, it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. Every time I try to do good, I only do that which has come before. Doesn't he sound exactly like Solomon? I delight in the law of God. Where? In my inmost self. I know what to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. 
But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The Kohelet said, everything is vanity. There is nothing for me under the sun. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that with my mind I'm a slave to the law of God but with my flesh I'm a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Solomon was willing at the end of his life to take it all and lay it at God's judgment, good or evil, because he realizes there's nothing he can do about it. What I love about that is without any assurance whatsoever, Solomon says, I'm going back to God. I'm gonna take it all and I'm gonna give it to God. And you might say, hold on, hold on. You gotta wait about 800 years for Jesus to come. Solomon says, God's still my best bet. And you and I come later to where that son of David sits on the throne and we're assured there is no condemnation. We can live and try to live by the wisdom of Solomon and we're gonna fall and fail every day but when we do, there is no condemnation if you take it to him. Let's go to God. Paul's come to the exact same conclusion. It's just that he places a name on God's judgment. He places a name as the difference between good and evil. And that name of God's judgment is Jesus. You gotta remember that you can take all your sins, every sin you've committed under the sun, lay it on the altar right now, and God isn't going to judge it right now. You know why? Because he already did. He already judged it at the cross and he made sure that whatever it is you're laying on the altar, you're atoned for, you're purified, and you're one with him. It's pretty impressive that Solomon, without that assurance, is still gonna go to God. He had to learn that somewhere. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do we get there? Real quick, how do we get there? We do the same thing Solomon did. See, because I don't know if you realize, but when you're reading Ecclesiastes, what is, what is Solomon doing in Ecclesiastes as he's exploring this, as he's introspectively going back and looking at the failures of him and his kingdom? What's he doing? He's confessing. And what happens when you confess? Sorry. So that's the beautiful thing is, is that he writes that entire book, he confesses every sin, every sin. He writes it all out. He, he labels it all as vanity. He tells God, I, 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 you know, what I did with my wisdom, I, I, I don't understand. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to him. He lays it all out there. So what did he just do? He confessed. 
So we have to write our Ecclesiastes every day. We look at a laundry list of Solomon's confession and we think, how can someone who did all that still be a son of God? Well, I have to tell you, just remember this, as we walk in this world in which we too are relying on our own wisdom and will fall and continue to fall, he says, just remember this, if you've got a problem with a lifetime of sin, intentional sin, being atoned for by a single act of the Son of Man, well, then you're thinking too hard. Your wisdom is taking you to a place you don't have to go. But you have to be careful, too, because there's a lot of people who would rather prefer that Solomon not be in the kingdom. Why? Because I want to be in the kingdom, and I didn't have as much fun as he did. If you don't think that Solomon's confession could be covered by a sacrifice that won't happen for another 800 years, well then your wisdom is leading you to places, dark places, that Solomon was led down to. And so it can be. It can be with human hearts, it can be with kingdoms and empires and beasts, and that's what we'll be looking at. What does our wisdom tell us? What does John the Revelator tell us? What does history tell us? What does prophecy tell us? We can't think our way or will our way out of this. We gotta come to God, we have to let him judge. I think my favorite part of Solomon's words or let him judge, because all his deeds, all of his deeds, whether they were good or evil, I've got no good deeds, so judgment is a no-brainer here. I've got nothing but evil, so judgment is a no-brainer here. With a human king and a human judge, I'm in big trouble. With a human king and a human judge, you're in big trouble, are we? And the most wise judge that ever lived said, I ain't going to no human judge. <laughs> I'm going to God. Solomon, Paul, John, all the wisest of the wise say confess and be free. If your wisdom tells you any more than that, quit listening to your wisdom. The words of the Koheleths the words of the teachers. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I look forward to getting at this. How about you? Thank you for holding on with me. Mm -hmm.